Hello, everyone, and welcome to SRNA's Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled, What is Neurosarcoidosis? My name is Sam Hughes, and I will be moderating this podcast. SRNA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about SRNA on the website at wearesrna.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the SRNA website, also for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. Our 2020 SRNA Ask the Expert podcast series is sponsored in part by Alexian, Viela Bio, and Genentech. Alexion is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal is to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist, and they are committed to ensuring that patient perspective and community engagement is always at the forefront of their work. Viela Bio is dedicated to the development and commercialization of novel life-changing medicines for patients with a wide range of autoimmune and severe inflammatory diseases. The company's approach, which targets the underlying molecular pathogenesis of a disease, is aimed at enabling the development of more precise therapies, identifying patients more likely to respond to treatment, and pursuing multiple indications for each product candidate. For additional information about Viela Bio, please visit www.vielabio.com. Founded more than 40 years ago, Genentech is a leading biotechnology company that discovers, develops, manufactures, and commercializes medicines to treat patients with serious and life-threatening medical conditions. The company, a member of the Roche Group, has headquarters in South San Francisco, California. For additional information about the company, please visit www.gene.com. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Michael Bradshaw and Dr. Rohini Samudwar. Dr. Bradshaw graduated from the Mayo Clinic School of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota, and completed his neurology residency at Vanderbilt University. He then pursued additional training in multiple sclerosis and autoimmune neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital of Harvard Medical School. His practice and research focus is on autoimmune neurology, including neurorheumatology, multiple sclerosis, neuroinfectious disease, and other rare neurologic disorders. Dr. Bradshaw is a neurologist at Billings Clinic in Billings, Montana. He's also an assistant professor of neurology, co-director of the Center for Rare Neuroimmune Disorders, director of medical education uh, for neurology at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science and University of Washington. Dr. Samudrawar is an assistant professor in the Division of Multiple Sclerosis and Neuroimmunology, part of the Department of Neurology at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. She received her medical degree in Philadelphia at Drexel University College of Medicine and neurology training at Baylor College of Medicine. Her subspecialty training in neuroimmunology was at Washington University in St. Louis, where she developed her expertise in multiple sclerosis, neurosarcoidosis, and neuroinfectious diseases. She currently works both in the Texas Medical Center as well as in the Harris County Health System. Her clinical efforts extend to all forms of neuroimmunological diseases and has a special interest in neurosarcoidosis. She is the designated neurologist, part of a multidisciplinary group of physicians that make up the 
University of Texas Sarcoidosis Clinic, recognized by the World Association of Sarcoidosis and Other Granulomatous Disorders. Welcome, and thank you both for joining us today after this extended introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us. <laughs> um, we'll uh, go ahead and dive into some questions and generally divide up for all of you who are listening um, into uh, this podcast into two parts. The first part where we'll uh, kind of discuss the diagnosis and causes of neurosarcoidosis. And then uh, in the second half, dive into um, treatments and long-term care options uh, for neurosarcoidosis. So first, um, I'll start with you, Dr. Bradshaw. Can you just briefly define what neurosarcoidosis is and how does it relate to non-neurosarcoidosis? Sure, and thank you for having me. Um, I think that's a great starting place. Sarcoidosis is um, an immune-mediated disorder, which is characterized by granulomatous inflammation and affects multiple different parts of the body. Those kind of technical terms just describe the type of inflammation that we see, but ultimately we think that it's caused by a combination of genetic predisposition and certain environmental triggers that lead to these uh, granulomas, which are little pockets of inflammation that can again happen in um, multiple different parts of the body. So neurosarcoidosis is when the nervous system is involved, and that can be the peripheral nervous system, it can be the muscle, it can be the central nervous system or cranial nerves or the brain or spinal cord included in that. Um, and that happens in some percentage of patients somewhere in the range of 10 to 20 or so percent, um, while other commonly affected organs for sarcoidosis in general include the lungs, which is affected in about 90% of patients, the skin, eyes, liver, and lymph nodes, et cetera. Great. Um, and as a follow-up uh, question, Dr. Bradshaw, um, when you talk about neurosarcoidosis versus non-neurosarcoidosis, do you normally see that uh, patients who have sarcoidosis diagnosed already are at a higher um, a risk of developing sarcoidosis within the nervous system, or can it just happen by itself as, an, as a uh, neurosarcoidosis without any other uh, organs involved? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, both can happen. And um, the neurologic, when, when neurosarcoidosis presents, the neurologic manifestations are usually what brings the patient to, to the clinic, you know, so double vision or some change in sensation or strength or whatever. Um, and that can happen in a surprisingly high number of patients with neurosarcoids. So, you know, most data would suggest that somewhere between, you know, 50 to 70% of patients present initially with a neurologic uh, feature when they do go on to develop neurosarcoid. Although many patients have known systemic sarcoidosis and then go on to develop neurologic involvement later. So both can happen. Okay. So this winds up being patient dependent. It's hard to say, you know, one way or the other, what you would expect um, uh, for, for uh, you know, potential sarcoid. That's correct. Okay. Um, and Dr. Samitrawar, uh, what are the general symptoms that, that you see the, the presentation of neurosarcoidosis? 
Yeah, with neurosarcoidosis, what makes it really challenging is that it can affect multiple areas of the nervous system, like Dr. Bradshaw mentioned. We have the central nervous system where uh, that involves the brain and spinal cord. And so if those areas are involved, you may experience headaches, people can have seizures. When the optic nerves are involved, you can have symptoms uh, related to optic neuritis, uh, double vision. Many times when the back of the brain or the spinal cord is involved, imbalance is also affected. And of course, weakness to the point where your legs aren't working the way they should, or you're not able to lift objects or move your arms uh, properly. And even episodes of uh, confusion or altered, uh, altered mentation can occur as well. And then when you talk about peripheral nervous system involvement, which also can be involved in neurosarcoidosis, uh, common symptoms would be burning and tingling in your legs, sometimes in the hands as well. And uh, that too can make it difficult to walk and, and stay uh, balanced. And the reason this is challenging is because it can affect so many different areas. And it's why we call neurosarcoidosis one of the, the great mimickers. It, it can look like a lot of different other entities as well. Yeah. And to that point, what you basically just described from my hearing are all the symptoms that could be associated with TM or MS or NMOSD or ADEN. So how do you as a neurologist, when you're assessing a patient who's coming, complaining of these, these neurological symptoms that could be a part of any of these disease processes, how, how, do, you, how do you go about um, parsing that out and distinguishing you know, what, what could be the true diagnosis? How do, you, how do you then ensure or find out that it is neurosarcoid as opposed to something else? Right. There, there's a lot of overlap when we just talk about symptoms on their own. And that's uh, the next step is uh, looking a little deeper. So um, obtaining an MRI um, of the brain, the spinal cord, when we think either of those are involved in the situation, or an EMG, a nerve conduction studies, where we test the, the, the communication between the nerves and muscles when we think the peripheral nervous system is involved. We usually start there. And looking at um, certain features on the MRIs and the EMG, we can identify whether they're consistent with things like uh, NMO or MOG or uh, sarcoidosis. And then going a little deeper, doing um, blood tests distinguishing uh, things like NMO and MOG antibody, where we can do a simple blood test and send off whether or not um, they're positive or negative. Because you're right, um, not only do the symptoms look very similar to in all these entities, but also the MRIs can be uh, very, uh, very similar as well. And then we also do a lumbar puncture, uh, which is not everyone's favorite, but it can be very, very helpful where we take a sample of the spinal fluid and then analyze it looking for uh, protein levels to see if there's uh, uh, innate increase in inflammation produced by the nervous system um, and uh, other, other factors that show that there's more inflammation in the spinal fluid versus outside of the body. That can, that can kind of give us a clue that maybe sarcoid or some sort of inflammatory disease is playing a role. Uh, traditionally, we've relied on this blood test and spinal fluid test called ACE. That's the typical one that um, you hear about whenever you look up sarcoidosis, this ACE level. 
But unfortunately, over the years, we've learned that it, it's not the most reliable test for neurosarcoidosis in particular, and many times can be normal even if neurosarcoidosis is very obviously present. Um, so we have to use these other pieces in our in our investigation to put put all the pieces together. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it winds up. Um, you, you basically have to have to rule out all of these other disorders that have more clear or clearer harm, hallmarks of, of blood tests or imaging and things of that nature, and and find yourself to um, um, this more of a diagnosis of exclusion. It sounds like. Would you is that, is that appropriate to say? It, it is, and, and now we we also move towards looking at other parts of the body, um, like Dr. Bradshaw mentioned, because sarcoidosis can many times also affect outside of the nervous system. Um, we try to get tissue samples either from the lungs or somewhere else in the body that looks like maybe there's granulomatous inflammation there, or if it's safe enough, um, we ask that we get a brain biopsy to evaluate and, and confirm that there's granulomas that could signify neurosarcoidosis playing a role. And that's really how we sort of cinch the diagnosis is analyzing the tissue in the lab. But we always have to balance uh, safety and risk factors for the patient. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so um, I would echo uh, what Dr. Samudral is saying um, and add that, uh, that really the tissue diagnosis is is ideal and as she said sometimes we can get a tissue diagnosis and sometimes not and so we do have some different diagnostic criteria for neurosarcoid including definite when we have a biopsy from the nervous system and it's consistent with sarcoidosis or probable sarcoid neurosarcoid when there's a neurologic presentation consistent with neurosarcoid and we take a tissue sample from the skin or a pulmonary lymph node and that's consistent with sarcoid then we call that a probable neurosarcoidosis. And then there's a possible category where we really can't, um, where, where we don't have as much confidence about the diagnosis. So ultimately at this point, I, I would agree that there's a lot of exclusion of other um, conditions that can look similar on uh, clinically or on imaging or on lab work. And then there's also inclusive criteria, which really is unfortunately still pretty heavily dependent upon a tissue diagnosis. So a biopsy is usually necessary to have any level of confidence about that diagnosis. Yeah, and that's right. And I, I think, Dr. Bracha, you'd agree that we we have to rely on our pulmonology colleagues and uh, dermatology or other other colleagues who also are aware of this disease and deal with sarcoidosis outside of the nervous system uh, to help us make that ultimate diagnosis. Yes, totally agreed. It's, a, it's definitely one of the conditions that really requires interdisciplinary management between multiple different subspecialties in most cases, I'd say. Yeah, I, I, um, uh, at UT Southwestern in, in Dallas, I know there's, you know, there's a handful of neurosarcoid patients that, that wind up in the neuroimmunology clinic and, you know, they, they tend to, to come from rheumatology or some other subspecialty and then it can, it's very much this, this partnership and, and, and sometimes, um, you know, depending on, on the different providers might run into the, you know, who, who's the quarterback here for the neurosarcoid patient. Um, uh, I wonder, uh, as neurologists, I, I imagine you have the idea of who should be in charge of, of the care. Um, but but I, I wonder how, how, in your experience, how you um, um, manage the, the care of these patients, because it does have to be so multidisciplinary um, between 
you know, the non-neurosarcoid and, and the neurological symptoms. Um, Dr. Samil Jawar, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, it's why we um, worked with the WESA group, the, um, the National International Association of Granulomatous Diseases, and particularly sarcoid. So we have a multidisciplinary group here at UT, and a lot of big institutions will have this where we have a designated pulmonologist, uh, dermatologist, rheumatologist, neurologist. And so we work within our network and refer patients within our network so that um, we're all on the same page and there isn't this confusion and kind of end up with too many cooks in the kitchen. So we all are, are, are respectful of each other's boundaries and, and where the disease is most active, that person, that specialist uh, sort of uh, leads the team. Um, but we always have each other to rely on um, to either help with diagnosis or help with management because this really is a disease that affects every, it could affect every organ system. So having that internal network is really um, has really been helpful for us and I think reassures the patients as well that we're we're, we're um, all talking together and, and we keep things on the same same page mm -hmm. it sounds like a great um, community of providers to to give the proper care it's you know it takes a village <laughs> it takes a village yeah <laughs> yeah I would expand also, outside of you know, outside of large academic institutions, this is often still happening. So many patients, you know, ideally we do have an interdisciplinary clinic where we're talking directly about each patient with the pulmonologist, et cetera. But in many places, that's not available, and that doesn't necessarily that's not necessarily a bad thing. So some people will not have access to UCSF or UT Southwestern or some other large institution that has that clinic. That doesn't mean they're not getting good care in their community. Yeah. It depends on the individuals who are involved. And like you said, kind of deciding who is the quote unquote quarterback is a decision that's variable from one group to the next. In some places, the rheumatologist is very comfortable managing neurosarcoid. And in some places, the neurologist is very uncomfortable managing neurosarcoid and will rely on rheumatology or another colleague. And so, so that really varies from one place to the next, one group to the next. And I think as long as the, from a patient's perspective, as long as you feel like, you know, if you do have an interdisciplinary team, as long as you feel like they're communicating <clears throat> with each other and your questions are being answered and your treatment is going well, then, then I would, you know, there's no need to necessarily fly across the country to see um, an interdisciplinary clinic. Um, so just to say that many, many very good groups in the community can can manage neurosarcoid well. That said, oftentimes we do find it is ideal to have that interdisciplinary uh, group. But just be reassured that you know if your rheumatologist is your primary manager, even though you have neurosarcoid, that oftentimes is very normal. Or yeah. the neurologist may be doing it. There's a huge range in who kind of takes over depending on individual comfort levels and individual clinical scenarios. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Not everyone has uh, resources to, like you say, fly out Outside the country, outside of their their uh, local area, and so it's not that you can't find uh, a great uh, neurologist or rheumatologist or specialist in your area. It's just um, talking to your doctor and and also asking them, you know, how how uh, how they would manage, how they feel comfortable with this. And most of the times, we we like to communicate with each other, no matter where we are. So it helps uh, linking up through your physician as well, no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all all good stuff. It's 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 good to have a, a as 
providers as clinicians, um, um, being able to, to speak to each other as peers and work together as peers always is, is it, in the best interest of the patients to, to make sure that, that everything is being handled properly. Often, unfortunately, it can fall through the cracks um, with, with com complicated chronic care, but you know, having, having that at the heart, the patient at heart of, of the multidisciplinary care is, is very valuable. Um, and Dr. Samilthawar, on a with a different question, you know, as we're as we think about and talk about transverse myelitis and these other rare neuroimmune disorders that um, we might be more more used to uh, in this community, um, can you have a neurosarcoidosis or just sarcoidosis in general along with uh, one of these other diagnoses? Can they can they happen concurrently? Would you or is that uh, not something that you expect to see? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think the phrase never say never comes to mind here because uh, there are reported cases of uh, neurosarcoidosis or sarcoidosis along with another autoimmune or immune-mediated disease, and we've, we've had a few here. And I think, Dr. Bradshaw, you've, you've um, seen that before as well, I'm sure. Um, uh, the 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 thing is is that when the immune system is involved, having one autoimmune disease many times can make you predisposed to another autoimmune disease in the general sense. Um, it doesn't happen very often, so within this rare disease community, it's even a smaller pocket of individuals for sure. Yeah, I, that's what I always understood is that autoimmune diseases can can cluster together sometimes. Yeah, uh, you can. Individual and and uh, with uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding with neuromyelitis optica spectrum um, in this group of disorders, there there tend to be uh, other autoimmune disorders, arthritis, and and that kind of thing um, uh, that can occur as well. So. Uh, I guess it's the jury is still kind of out on on you know true true connections. Um, we just need to, like you said, never say never. Always be be looking for for what might be going on. And yeah, I would, many, oh, go ahead. Okay. Oh, okay, I was going to say I just I I would agree with that that occasionally they can overlap and and it's true autoimmune diseases do tend to travel together. The underlying pathophysiology for neurosarcoid is quite different, however, from multiple sclerosis or the Acoporin-4 or MOG-positive NMO spectrum disorders. You may have a patient who truly has neurosarcoid who could fall into the double negative NMO spectrum disorder where the MOG and the Acoporin-4 are negative. And depending on what you know, imaging features we see and clinical features, they may have, uh, someone with neurosarcoidosis predominantly affecting the optic nerves and or spinal cord may fall into that clinical category of the Acoporin-4 negative, MOG negative NMO spectrum disorders because it can cause a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis. And in that setting, we usually, again, will test the specific biomarkers. And if those are negative, then it's suggests against those diagnoses. And if we see certain features on MRI, for example, um, leptomeningeal contrast enhancement, especially if it persists for several months, um, there's this trident sign that's been described at Mayo by Flanagan and his colleagues. And so there's some other imaging features that can suggest neurosarcoid over one of these other diagnoses. But to really, again, to really be confident in that setting, you would need like a leptomeningeal biopsy or some sort of tissue biopsy, ideally from the nervous system. But if that's not safe to do, then from somewhere else. And then you would say, well, 
they presented with uh, aquaporin-4 mod negative NMO spectrum disorder, but actually, you know, now we found pulmonary sarcoid, and so we would say this is probable neurosarcoid affecting the spinal cord and or optic nerve, for example. So, um, so the, the diseases can certainly, you can have two autoimmune conditions at the same time, but the, uh, a point to make is that the underlying pathophysiology is very different, even if the genetic predisposition and environmental triggers may be similar. Um, and that has important implications for treatment, whereas some treatments for, um, for neurosarcoidosis can actually cause or worsen multiple sclerosis. So it's really important to have some degree of confidence here. And likewise, some treatments for, you know, treatments for MS generally would not prove, other than steroids, would not generally prove effective for neurosarcoids. So, so these are important points to identify. And I guess I'd also include in there, there are a number of infectious causes that can look similar to neurosarcoid that need to be ad addressed and when possible excluded. Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's, it's always fascinating to, you know, we in, talked before about you know, the similar overlapping symptoms and, and the difficulties in parsing it out and um, knowing that and then also knowing that they're the underlying you know causes of the diseases are very different and you have to treat them very differently it can be i think especially from from the the patient and the family standpoint it can be very confusing um and scary to to hear this and, and have to think about that and there's a lot of trust in in the providers to, to really be looking thoroughly at, at what's going on um to, to really figure out the different what's going on and 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 not just you know, assume that it's one diagnosis and be treated. Right. right. There's a process that we're going through of a, a, an appropriate level of diagnostic uncertainty that, like I say, is appropriate because, you know, unless you have definitive diagnostic criteria that you're meeting, and usually people aren't at first, then the clinician should have some uncertainty and that's healthy, but that can be even more scary or confusing for a patient when the doctor saying, I'm not sure what it is, but we're going to do all this work up. But that's actually good medicine to address multiple potential causes and then find the one based on a number of features that would support the diagnosis, not just one test or one symptom, et cetera. Yeah, I always, I always tell patients the, the hardest part is is getting to the final diagnosis. And I, I unfortunately, we have to go through a lot of different testing and all of that. But it's exactly for that reason that we don't want to make the wrong diagnosis, which can easily be done in a very elusive disease like neurosarcoidosis, and then start uh, an inappropriate therapy. So that that's probably the, the most challenging aspect here for both the patient and their, their physician. Mm -hmm. um, so Dr. Dr. Bradshaw, in your introduction um, describing the, the disease, you mentioned that, um, uh, you mentioned genetic predisposition. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on, on what we know um, about any genetic predisposition for neurosarcoidosis? Is it different from uh, what what is all in the literature around predisposition to autoimmune disorders? Um, any any anything to help us understand that more? Uh, clinically, there really is not, to my knowledge, and uh, Dr. Samudrawal can address this as well. But to my knowledge, there really is not anything genetically that we can use reliably as a predictor. There are some haplotypes that may increase the risk of specific phenotypes of neurosarcoids, such as the Lofgren syndrome, um, but there's nothing that's really that useful 
on a clinical basis. So there's been a number of genetic studies, um, including um, more recent studies that show complex patterns of inheritance and risk for sarcoidosis. And most of those genes, um, which are susceptibility genes, are important in, in immune function. But I'm not familiar with any sort of genetic test that would give you any degree of diagnostic confidence um, beyond kind of what we say for many autoimmune conditions, which is to say, well, there's some combination of genetic risk factors plus environmental triggers. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. There's nothing that, no test out there that helps us make the diagnosis in the clinical setting. Um, but what we are understanding is uh, through a lot of work uh, done uh, throughout the country, uh, looking at the general ethnicity genetic predispositions, that's probably where we see some sort of signal um, in the genetic world for neurosarcoidosis. For example, in um, African-American communities or Scandinavian background, there seems to be some genetic pattern there. But um, does not help us with the ultimate diagnosis. We're just noticing that groups of uh, ethnicity, different ethnic populations may have more of a predisposition for the disease. Mm -hmm. And kind of you're, you're answering that kind of got to this, this next question, but maybe we can elaborate more on it is, um, do you, is there any, anything that we know of, of a certain, um, uh, you know, picture of the neurosarcoid patient? Is it more older older people can it affect children as well is it more um, uh, predominant in males or females you know uh, for example multiple sclerosis is historically you know thought to be more common in caucasian women is there any kind of uh signal in any direction around around what might be the demographics more commonly affected with neurosarcoidosis Mm -hmm. The typical age range seems to be between 20 to 40, but, you know, in practice, we see all ages, mainly in adults. Um, I haven't heard much when, in the pediatric population, but again, because this is a difficult to diagnose disease, um, uh, it, it may be going underdiagnosed, but usually the age range is between 20 to 40 years of age, definitely can be uh, younger or older than that. Um, and then gender-wise, and autoimmune diseases in general tend to uh, appear more frequently in women than in men. Um, but I think specifically neurosarcoidosis, I think we need a, uh, more dedicated studies to really pin down those numbers a little bit better. And maybe Dr. Bradshaw uh, can speak to that a little bit as well. And as far as predispositions, like I mentioned, um, things like uh, we, we're noticing that there seems to be certain signals in, in certain ethnic populations. And it doesn't mean that those outside of those populations will not develop uh, sarcoidosis. It's, it's perhaps just not a valid evaluated as, as discreetly yet. Um, here in Texas, we have a, a large Hispanic population as well, and I have several patients in, in that category that have neurosarcoidosis, um, but we, we don't have too much background information in the, in the research field yet on that. Mm -hmm. I would agree that, um, that the age range is, that's about the typical age range in my experience and to my knowledge. Um, I have never seen a child, nor have I actually heard of a child diagnosed with neurosarcoid, but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen or doesn't happen, but I've just not seen that. Um, so middle age does tend to be, I, I'd agree when we see it. And um, 
And from a, a gender standpoint, I agree. You know, it, they seem to be, most studies would say that they're roughly equally affected between men and women, but some report a slight female pre uh, predominance for neurosarcoid. So agree, there's still a little more data to figure out there, but that's the general trend is more or less equal or maybe slightly more women, as opposed to MS where it's clearly much more uh, common in women. And for ethnicity, agreed again, you know, the numbers would say, the most recent numbers that I'm familiar with that we talk about would be, you know, in Caucasian Americans, the risk is about three to 10 in 100,000. Whereas for African Americans, it's about 35 to 80 per 100,000 or somewhere in that range. So significantly more frequent in African Americans, but again, there are more Caucasian Americans in the country. So we see it quite frequently in Caucasians as well. Yeah. And it may, it may even depend on the region of the country you're in as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, you know, multifactorial, like these diseases are. <laughs> yeah, to talk to Samudra's last point, I would say that, you know, I've been in, in Montana for two years now, and I've, I saw one case of neurosarcoid here, and that's been it. And we have a large catchment area, um, but in fellowship and residency, you know, we had quite a few. So my residency was in Nashville, Tennessee, and we, you know, with Dr. Uh, Sid Pawati was my primary mentor there, and we had a lot of neurosarcoid patients. And likewise, in fellowship um, at MGH, we had a, many neurosarcoid patients. So, yeah. so, and the population is more sparse here in Montana, but, um, but we just don't seem to see that much of it up here. Mm. Yeah, it's all, it's all very, very interesting to see. And I mean, the reality is for these disorders, these especially these rare disorders in general, there just isn't a lot of um, a, as much work as as needs to be done in a very rigorous way to kind of figure out are there these these relationships here that more work needs to be done on a larger scale. Um, and, and it kind of applies to, to all of these rare diseases. Um, as we move into the second half of the, the podcast, and we want to talk a little bit more about treatments and care of neurosalcordosis. So um, Dr. Samudrawar, could you describe what acute treatments are for neurosarcoidosis um, and what, uh, how you would go about managing those meds? Yeah, I, I think um, the, the treatments are probably going to sound, the acute treatments are, will probably sound familiar to a lot of people. Um, they're very similar to a lot of our other autoimmune diseases. So we usually start off with prednisone or some form of steroids. Um, usually um, in our system where if we see a pretty severe involvement and have confirmed the diagnosis of neurosarcoid, we start off with a pretty hefty dose of 1,000 milligrams and we'll do that for a few days. And then um, the most important part that we've noticed is that um, stopping steroids um, in neurosarcoidosis can allow these flare-ups to occur and recurrence of the disease. And so we initiate a, a pretty prolonged a taper of um, uh, prednisone oral steroids that they that they take for a long period of time um, as we're starting immunotherapy, which is more of the chronic therapy. So in the acute setting, when someone comes in with symptoms that are active and an active um, MRI have confirmed the diagnosis, we start off with steroids, much like um, in, in other uh, disease entities as well. 
there are some studies out there and some institutions that may also do things like IVIG and plasmapheresis, which are a little bit more uh, involved therapies in the acute setting. But for neurosarcoidosis, steroids seems to seems to be overwhelmingly more more helpful in the acute setting. Mm -hmm. And um, to this point about you know acute say acute treatment versus chronic treatment or acute disease versus chronic disease. You know, I, do you think about neurosarcoidosis as more like a, uh, say like a NMOSD where there are attacks, where there are relapses, and then you manage um, in a chronic way to try to prevent those relapses? Or do you think of it more like uh, a transverse myelitis where there's there's an attack on the system and there's deficit and then you try to manage those deficits yeah it's um it's it's more of a chronic disease from what we understand right now with neurosarcoidosis where um, it involves certain parts of of the nervous system we treat it in the initial setting with steroids and continue doing steroids for a long period of time and in the past we we thought you know after we cut down on steroids uh you know the, the sarcoid should be treated and we're, we're done we're good to go but unfortunately what we've realized is that with neurosarcoidosis in particular, it does seem to come back many times after steroids are, are completed, which is why we've moved towards the practice of doing more long-term therapies, chronic therapies, using a lot of immune-mediated uh, um, medicines. A, a lot of these medications are borrowed from um, other rheumatological diseases, other autoimmune pulmonary diseases um, and those sort of things to help uh, make sure that there's no recurrence of the disease or um, a, a, another attack. Um, usually with neurosarcoidosis, it, it tends to be recurrence of that same area involved, but can also extend to other parts of the brain, spinal cord, or peripheral nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Bradshaw, as you as you're treating a neurosarcoid patient and um, looking at the longer term chronic therapies, what kind of uh, treatments do you do you look at and how do you, you know, make that decision about one versus the other for a particular patient? Yeah, so I would say um, um, from on the acute standpoint, yes, I agree. We usually use glucocorticoids or some sort of steroids. And oftentimes if it's a severe presentation, the IV steroids followed by a very prolonged taper of the oral steroid. We, we do sometimes if a patient presents with a severe presentation and oftentimes in neurosarcoid where the initial presentation can be quite severe, um, we may use one of these more, you know, quote unquote maintenance therapy or long-term immunomodulators initially upfront. And so for example, tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, you know, um, may be used as a, as a quote unquote first line therapy and can be very effective in that setting. So, um, but then as we transition into the chronic, you know, um, maintenance type therapy where we're trying to prevent further episodes from happening, once a patient has an adequate response to, um, to their steroid treatment based on their clinical symptoms, the neurologic exam, and oftentimes neuroimaging or occasionally um, biometrics such as the cerebrospinal fluid markers of inflammation, if they have an adequate response and then we wanna start some maintenance preventative therapy, then the main ones that we use at this point are um, the traditional immunosuppressants like azathioprine, which is probably the least effective, 
um, methotrexate or mycophenolate mofetil. Those are kind of the old standbys. And then um, we may or may not use tumor necrosis factor inhibitors like, um, like infliximab, for example, um, in addition to or instead of one of those other options. But uh, as Dr. Samudrawal was saying, you know, this prolonged taper of the steroid is important, particularly if we use one of these traditional immunosuppressants like methotrexate or mycophenolate, because they take, you know, a, a long time, several months to achieve full immunosuppressive activity. Um, and we may combine a very low, you know, so for example, when we do use infliximab or one of these tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, we may combine that with a very low dose of one of the other traditional immunosuppressants to try to help decrease the risk of that patient developing immunity against the treatment, against the tumor necrosis factor inhibitor. So we may use combination therapies, et cetera. And deciding which of these medications to use and in what order really is heavily individualized. And so if time is of the essence and we need to get the disease under control immediately because they have a severe presentation, then we may, like I say, we may do high dose steroids up front along with the tumor necrosis factor inhibitor. If we have a little more time, we may not, you know, if it's a more mild presentation, um, we may do lower dose steroids and add uh, one of the more traditional immunosuppressants. We may not need the tumor necrosis factor inhibitor. Or likewise, we may integrate other information about that patient. So for example, you know, do they have some other systemic autoimmune condition? Do they have other medications that might interact with one or the other of these or baseline liver dysfunction, et cetera? So, so the decision between these is very individualized. And as yet, for neurosarcoid, there has not been a clinical trial demonstrating which agent is the preferred agent. So that said, it's like, I always joke with patients that it's like a parachute. You don't need a clinical trial of parachutes to know that if you're gonna jump out of an airplane, you should wear a parachute. So we still have a lot of good information about these medicines, but which one is quote unquote ideal uh, remains to be seen. There, to, last I knew there was a trial enrolling, but uh, I'm not sure where that is at this point. And another thing to emphasize, you know, a lot of the uh, patients feel a lot better with those high-dose steroids and, and even on the, the taper that they're put on and may ask sometimes, you know, do they really need to be on an immunosuppressant that when you look at the side effects can be quite daunting. Um, but of course, steroids, as wonderful as they are, um, impose a lot of side effects that we have to consider as well, you know, aside from just weight gain, cause rashes, mood changes, insomnia. So all the more reason to get on an immunotherapy that is chronic, uh, that you're going to use for a longer term, and probably has better chance of, a, of a keeping the sarcoid out of the system as much as possible and uh, minimizing those effects from the steroids itself. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, the, and that's a really good point that a steroid, the, the whole idea is to get them onto a steroid, what we call a steroid sparing agent, where we can avoid giving them long-term oral steroids, which come with so many risks, including what, what she mentioned, but also infection and things like this. And so we think that getting them onto a steroid sparing immunosuppressant is a good idea. And how long that patient needs to be treated really is individual. And some patients may have their neurosarcoid for a stretch of time. If it's really well controlled after a few years, one might consider withdrawing treatment and very careful monitoring, looking for recurrence. And in some cases, after several years of excellent control, it may not recur, but it does require close monitoring both with the neurologist and with neuroimaging to look for evidence of recurrence when you do try to withdraw therapy. But that, 
that is sometimes a possibility. Um, Dr. Samudrawar, as you're looking at a neurosarcoidosis patient through the course of, you know, their their life or or their time with the disease and on and on treatment, what what do you expect to be kind of the long-term effects of, of the disease? Um, uh, I know that that I'm sure depends on on where where the disease is in the in the nervous system, but what do you see um, long-term disability or concerns of that nature where, you know, it, it just kind of, there could be a, a, a progressive uh, down, you know, moving downhill um, over the course of time, or, or do you expect something different? Yeah, um, this is a question that I hear a lot, and I, I would categorize it into two different areas. So one is uh, the long-term effects from neurosarcoidosis directly, and that really depends on what part of your nervous system was involved in the first place um, with the neurosarcoidosis. So if you had a transverse myelitis-like picture and um, you developed some weakness um, after that, and you were lucky enough, you got treatment um, pretty soon, you may have some residual weakness um, at, even after treatment. We would hope to resolve as much as we can with the steroids and chronic therapy, um, but there may be some residual weakness afterwards. But theoretically, once you're on immunosuppressive therapy, uh, we hope that you, there is no more new symptoms and are uh, directly from the neurosarcoid the, itself. And then there's another category Category, which I refer to as the baggage with any autoimmune disease. It's a similar uh, set of symptoms that come along with MS, with NMOSD, with ADEM, where um, there, it's not a direct impact from the uh, the disease itself, but rather when your immune system is involved. And these things can include things like uh, short-term memory difficulties, cognitive uh, changes to the point where, you know, a lot of forgetfulness, um, fatigue, uh, or the cog fog that a lot of my MS patients describe, some of my neurosarcoid patients also describe as well. Um, uh, those sort of things can come on as sort of the baggage with this disease. And so we try to help and treat symptomatically with other sorts of medication, lifestyle changes, improving sleep, what have you. Um, that's probably some of the long-term effects that stick around even on very good therapy. And it's not directly related to a new spot on the brain or the spinal cord or a new relapse per se, but more so just having your immune system involved in such a dramatic way. Dr. Bradshaw, do you have anything to add? Uh, no, I would agree with um, what Dr. Samudrawa has said. And um, and would also echo that we do see um, one important idea is that as with multiple sclerosis and many other autoimmune conditions of the nervous system or neuroimmune mediated conditions, um, the symptoms may not always correlate with disease activity and particularly for non-focal symptoms like fatigue or depression or um, things like that may not correlate with disease activity. And so but reviewing those and talking about them and working toward optimizing quality of life is still important, even if it isn't a direct consequence from active inflammation that's ongoing. Now, um, in neurosarcoid, one, you know, quote unquote, non-focal neurologic symptom that is really important is, is headaches because, you know, the leptomeningitis can, that we see in neurosarcoid not infrequently can produce a lot of headaches. 
that said, patients often have migraines as well because migraines are so common. So sorting out which is which relies, you know, depends upon the neurologic exam and the story and, and sometimes some follow-up MRIs, et cetera, to make sure that the disease is well controlled. And hand-in-hand hand with disease control comes symptom management and quality of life issues, as Dr. Uh, Samudrawal was saying. Yeah, I, I think this is something we could probably, as physicians, delve into a little bit more. And there are quality of life assessments out there that we can do with our patients and maybe something to focus on after the acute symptoms have resolved and, and uh, there is some sort of stability, at least on the imaging. Um, we just had a question come in from, from a listener. Um, do you, has there been any environmental cause identified that is related to neurosarcoidosis? Uh, we talked about genetics, um, but is there um, any anything in the environment or any way that we can, you know, help ourselves to, to prevent this? That um, there is very little um, convincing or conclusive data on that. There have been a number of good studies over the years looking at possible infectious causes um, and non-degradable antigens can become a nidus for granuloma formation. Um, there was a study recently that suggested that this protein amyloid A may be a potential um, biomarker, but, but not yet. Right now, we don't really have anything environmentally that we can point to very clearly. There are a number of fungal and other infections that can also produce a similar appearance on pathology, and that comes down to the pathologist doing the appropriate testing to exclude tuberculosis and other mycobacterial infections, histoplasmosis, and a number of other things that can look quite similarly um, if the special stains are not performed. So there are conditions that, again, can mimic neurosarcoid very closely. But I'm not familiar with any one thing, you know, other than, okay, so for example, in, um, in the Twin Towers with all of this dust uh, and concrete part particulate that um, fire worker, uh, first responders, et cetera, were exposed to, there was an increase in sarcoidosis associated with that. So there are some things that have some evidence behind them, but I wouldn't say that there's much that you can, you know, should people avoid um, particular um, chemicals or things like that. We don't really have anything strictly there other than kind of common sense stuff. Like if you're doing concrete sawing work, you should be wearing appropriate personal protective equipment, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I was actually going to mention that same uh, study that about the the, nine, the Twin Towers and um, the firefighters who develop sarcoidosis. I think there was also an Italian study uh, with similar findings as well, linking um, particles in the in the air. But there's no specific trigger cause that we can say, you know, you should avoid this or avoid that. Um, and, and I think there's a, a little bit more perhaps more stronger evidence for a potential infectious exposure in uh, in a person's history that may trigger the um, the onset of these granuloma formations. But uh, the, the definitive cause remains to be seen. Mm, yeah, I mean, that, make, that makes sense. And, and again, kind of more work to be done and, and questions to ask. Um, as we are looking at the, the last few minutes of, of the hour, I wanted to turn this back over to, to the experts here. And um, if there's any final thoughts that, that, that you have around neurosarcoidosis and, 
and um, uh, advice or, or thoughts for the community to take away um, as we wrap, wrap up the hour. Uh, Dr. Bradshaw, do you have any final thoughts? Um, no, I think we've covered most of the main points that, that I wanted to make sure that we addressed, um, and, and particularly the interdisciplinary management of these patients, given that it's a multi-system uh, condition. Um, that integrated work is really important. And um, I would encourage you know, patients who are being treated to um, talk to their clinicians about symptoms that may be concerning, to ask them about recent advances in the field, you know, and to just generally um, be in close communication with your neurologist and or your pulmonologist or rheumatologist. Because if, we, if you don't tell us that something is going on, then we, we, don't, we don't know that it's going on. So being sure that you're communicating symptoms and things is important. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, I might have, I pulled the trigger on, on Final Thoughts CC and we just got a couple uh, questions and I think we have a little bit of time. Um, uh, so can the question, first question is, can prolonged stress or something like an immunization um, received under certain circumstances, there, is there any uh, idea that that could cause or worsen neurosarcoidosis, Dr. Bradshaw? Um, in general, there's no evidence to support that. And from a, you know, people will, people can have very strong feelings about immunization. I will say in general, I am not familiar with any studies that suggest that immunization increases the risk of sarcoidosis or other autoimmune conditions. Um, um, and uh, chronic stress, you know, apart from it, chronic stress, psychological stress can be a physiological stressor, which can cause an, you know, kind of theoretically cause an increased immune activity. That's kind of theoretical. And so the answer to that is essentially to say, well, you know, you should try to manage your stress because it's bad for you in a number of ways. But I wouldn't let the fact that you have a stressful job or some other life stressor contribute to even more personal stress for fear that that could worsen your underlying condition. I would just do your best to address that, that stress that you may have. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Samudrawar, another question came in. Can neurosarcoidosis or sarcoidosis in general impact the GI system or the cardiovascular system? Um, definitely, can, uh, we have uh, evidence that it can affect the heart uh, in pretty dramatic ways for sure, and, and that's why we many times will even involve a cardiologist in our workup of sarcoidosis, um, and this can manifest um, as chest pain, uh, many times as dysautonomia, where blood pressures are kind of all over the place, um, arrhythmias even at times. Um, as far as the GI system, uh, many times we can find uh, granulomas. Um, if it's pretty severe, we can see granulomas in the peritoneum, which is sort of the covering the overlying uh, tissue over the GI system. Um, and if the and GI system in rare cases can also be involved, um, but I personally have only seen this in, in one or two cases in very, very severe multisystemic uh, sarcoidosis. But more commonly, we tend to start off seeing it in uh, the lung um, somewhere in the brain, spinal cord, or nervous tissue. Um, as a continuation of that, from the GI standpoint, do you uh, see with neurosarcoid, like neurologically driven issues with the GI, like like uh, motility or swallowing issues, can that occur? 
Um, more specifically, many times if the spinal cord is involved in a certain area that controls how the GI system can behave, so you may have some bowel incontinence. Um, so that's the more common thing that I hear. Um, as far as motility and those things, I have not heard that and I have not seen that in the literature. Maybe Dr. Bradshaw can comment as well, um, but un unless it's directly involved with granulomas themselves. More commonly on the neurological side, we hear that the bowel incontinence, uh, again, when certain aspects of the spinal cord are involved because that's where many of the control centers are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that. Um, a small fiber neuropathy can sometimes um, cause some bowel dysmotility if there's some autonomic dysfunction, um, but I, I can't say that I see that very often with neurosarcoid, though it's possible. Mm -hmm. yeah. but I would also that, you know, I have seen a few patients, again, we are neurologists, so we have some selection bias. I've had a few patients over the years with, you know, hepatic sarcoidosis, and they tended, I would agree that they tended to have very severe systemic sarcoid um, uh, so that's just a couple of patients that I've had, but um, seems to be a similar pattern to what Dr. Samudrawa uh, had. Mm -hmm. Well, good. Those are very interesting questions coming from the community. Thank you for, for submitting those. And now, as we are getting to the final minutes of the hour, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll throw it to Dr. Samudrawa. Um, any final thoughts or uh, um, ideas for the community as we as we end this? Well, I, I hope that this was helpful for everyone who is listening um, and does eventually listen. Uh, but I, I think I would just stress that this is a challenging disease, both, both for the clinician and for the patient as well. And so that relationship is very, very important, um, like we've mentioned many times before. And uh, uh, it does take some time to get to the diagnosis, but ultimately with very judicious workup, um, it can be achieved. And then and then figuring out the proper therapy um, can also be a challenge, but, but at least at that point, you have a little a, a title and a name for what's going on. Many times uh, we we get patients who have been to several doctors and um, don't have a full diagnosis, and that sometimes is the most uh, stressful stressful aspect. But eventually we do get there. Mm -hmm. And one comment on that too is that again, I'm I'm sure Dr. Samudrawal sees this a lot, where patients um, may feel disparagingly about the initial consultations they had from primary care doctors, emergency department visits, or other neurologists even, um, when ultimately the diagnosis is established. But that's not to say that those clinicians did not do a good job along the way. It's just a very difficult to di diagnosis to come to and does require a lot of expertise and a lot of appropriate diagnostic workup to come back one thing after another negative. And so, so many times patients will, you know, once we establish a diagnosis, they they may feel like they were mismanaged early on. And, and I have to say that in my experience, most of the time they have not been. It's just that it's very difficult to diagnose and coming to see a subspecialist who's specifically trained in a condition, you made it to them eventually. And, and that can be a process that can be, you know, from a patient's perspective, painfully long and frustrating. But I would say that I, I really have not seen many times where I felt like someone was clearly you know, the diagnosis should have been established much earlier. Generally, I think that clinicians that I've seen patients from have done a very good job. It's just very difficult to do and takes a lot of work to establish the diagnosis. 
Yeah, and, and hopefully with all the research that's being done and the interest that's sort of been incurred around this disease nowadays, I, I think we can start to get more answers and, and hopefully streamline that process a little bit better. And it really starts with programs like this where we have some knowledge spread to the, the general community. Mm -hmm. Yes, I completely agree. Thank you both so much, Dr. Bradshaw and Dr. Sumutawar, for your time today and your expertise. Um, and for your work in the community. And thank you to the community, everyone who is listening to this um, live and, and not live in the future for your questions and for your interest in, in these educational um, uh, podcasts. And thank you to our, um, uh, the sponsors of this podcast, Lexion, Viela Bio, and Genentech, um, and to SRNA for, for allowing this opportunity and for hosting hosting this great um, um, educational opportunity. Thanks again, and I hope everybody has a great week. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having us, and, and, and many kudos to SRNA. We appreciate what you guys do very much.